Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and as always, we thank you for listening to The Next Track podcast. If you'd like to contact us or get our older episodes, you can just run on over to thenexttrack.com. This is episode number 80, and today we are very happy to welcome the co-founder and executive director of the John Cage Trust, Laura Kuhn. Laura, thank you for taking the time to join us, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much, Doug. It's great to be here. Laura, it's really nice to talk to you. I, I discovered your work in the recently published book of The Selected Letters of John Cage. I've been interested in John Cage's music for, I don't know, more than 30 years, and I've always liked reading letters and journals and biographies. You're the executive director of the John Cage Trust. How did you get involved in editing this book, which is, what is it, about 600 pages of letters from John Cage when he was in his 20s till near the end of his life? Exactly. The letters actually span 1930 to 1992. So 62 years, exactly. And how did you get involved in editing this book? Well, it goes, it goes way back. I mean, I started working for, I was a graduate student in Los Angeles at UCLA in musicology, and I got an award, which entitled me to go to New York and live for three months. And it was at sort of the tail end of that uh, grant period that I was introduced to John Cage. And we just hit it off. He, I like to tell people, and there's some truth to this, that he didn't like to tell people what to do. And I was a cheeky graduate student and didn't like to be told what to do. And so that was a marriage made in heaven. He was very, very backed up on work that he was doing for the Frankfurt Opera on his only opera. Ended up being called Your Operas 1 and 2, a collage work involving 200 years of Western European opera. So I assisted him for, a, I don't know, four or six weeks before I went back to Los Angeles. And it was just a good relationship. I ended up coming back uh, later that year and staying for several years and working with him directly. So I was sort of the closest thing that he had to um, an heir, if you will, in terms of his legacy. At the time that he died, we had been working together off and on for about five and a half years. So we uh, started the John Cage Trust about a year after that really to maintain our own sanity, to put a structure around the fact that people wouldn't go away, that, you know, that John Cage actually didn't die, he just passed into another realm. But the world still wanted access to everything, and that fell on me. I was living at the time, had accepted a teaching job in Arizona, so I was bouncing back and forth between Arizona and New York. This was uh, 1992, and uh, losing my sanity, lost all my friends, my health was going, and I basically... Told Merce Cunningham, who was my, you know, soldier in arms, that I couldn't do it anymore. He was horrified, and we immediately, he immediately took steps to put um, a structure around it, and the John Cage Trust was formed uh, in late 19. Well, actually, it was sort of the middle of 1993 when we gained nonprofit status at the end of 93. We thought, by the way, that the John Cage Trust would last for four or five years as we got all the materials sort of categorized and cataloged and distributed out in the world, and the world just never went away. In fact, we've grown. So we're in, you know, year 24. We'll be celebrating our 25th anniversary next year. The book was just a labor of love. It was just, um, it's something I always wanted to do, and his, uh, the book was scheduled to come out for his centennial, which was in 2012, believe it or not. Um, and it didn't come out until 2016. That's exactly right. This gives you an idea of what a big project it was. 
I think it took, it was basically a little bit more than a five-year project. But um, it was just something I always wanted to do. And as the executive director of the John Cage Trust, I usually get to do the things that I want to do. It's one of the perks of my job. So That sounds like a good job. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The John Cage Trust has what? The John Cage Music Manuscript Collection. It says some 28,000 pages. I, I can imagine that cataloging that must have taken years. It took three months. Oh, that's pretty good. It's amazing, isn't it? I know. We're really, really efficient. Because we're, you know, we're pragmatic Americans. Yes. It, uh, I brought together, that was the first order of business. And that was actually done before the John Cage Trust was even a, a glimmer in anyone's eye. It was done fairly quickly after Cage died. Cage had all of his manuscripts, or virtually all of his manuscripts, in his apartment So with Merce Cunningham. So I actually, being the closest thing that they had to anybody who was going to do anything... Um, I was given license to pull together a team of musicologists. So we brought together five people, two Americans, one Dutch, one German, and one Hungarian, all of whom had relationship with Cage's works in one way or another. And it took us about three months to take all those manuscripts and order them, make two archival copies, and then subsequent to that, the actual original manuscript collection was placed at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts here in New York. We maintain a copy for internal purposes, but they actually have the originals since they're, you know, they're set up to do that. Right. So I see you've also co-produced some audio releases with Mode Records. We had Brian Brandt of Mode Records on the show, and it's really fascinating to hear his story about how he created a record label just to produce and release John Cage's recordings. Yes, it's amazing. You know, I didn't even know that about I've known Brian for a good 30 years, long before Cage died. I had never heard that story until the centennial when I was on a panel with him. And I was shocked. And it's the same, exactly the same sort of story that I heard earlier than that from our gallerist, who was John Cage's gallery representation for some 35 years. And she had never ran a gallery. She never had a gallery. But it was really Cage's suggestion that maybe she'd like to do that. (laughs) So that's how she started. And she's still at it. You know, it's kind of amazing how Cage uh, empowered people you know, to to take on something that they looked like they might be interested in, and then they become um, devoted to it. I had the opportunity to meet John Cage in late 1986. I was living in Paris at the time, and I was publishing a journal about the I Ching. And I grew up in New York, as you can tell from my accent. And so around Christmas time, I knew I was going back. And I wrote him a letter asking if I could interview him. And he said, of course. And he was such a fascinating person. He's so charming. And he was so when you would talk to him, you would know that you were the center of attention, and he was always so interested in what people did. And I can totally imagine him taking an idea and making it sound like it's the best thing in the world for someone to do. I, yes, and I would maybe go further than that even, and I bet you would agree that you wanted him to like you. Yeah. You wanted to, you wanted to be like him, and you wanted him to approve, I guess. Yeah whatever it was that you were wanting to do. So it wasn't like a challenge or anything. It was more like um, just wanting to wanting to play with him, you know, wanting to be around him and wanting to be involved with him in whatever way that was going to that was going to take shape. Yeah, he, he was a very sincere, very nice person. And uh, I interviewed him for about a half an hour. And, and when I mentioned that I like James Joyce, he said, oh, well, you have to come to this gallery tomorrow night where I'm starting a reading of Finnegan's Wake which at the time I hadn't read Finnegan's Wake. I'd read all the other Joyce books. And so we went to this gallery and he I, he read about the first half hour of it. 
And it was real. It was fascinating to hear him him read Finnegan's Wake, which is a, a notoriously difficult text. But he also there are there are many recordings of of his voice, and he has this wonderful voice that's really comforting and relaxing. Uh-huh. I agree. I agree. And it's it's sort of a uh, it's it is kind of he speaks without syntax in a way. So the periods are not articulated. Question marks are not really articulated. You know, so he's it's more like a lullaby when he talks. I'll put a link in the show notes to a couple of recordings that you can hear online. One is Cage reading his diary, which is entitled Diary How to Improve the World, open parenthesis, you will only make matters worse. And another one is a very interesting interview between Cage and Morton Feldman. It's like four or six hours long. And when you hear him talk, he has this he has this relaxing rhythm and, and the tone of his voice is, is really friendly. It's true. It's true. Those radio happenings, you know, have you seen the newer publication that has the audio with it? No, I know that Mode released that recently, didn't they? They did with uh, Music Texta in Cologne, yeah. Gisela yeah. Gronemeyer. It's really very beautiful. If you're interested in this work, you should get that book because it it's not expensive, and it comes with all of the radio. There are five radio happenings. Each was an hour long. It's the only clean recording. There was dropout in the things that you can hear yep. online. It's really, really special. And it's particularly fun to hear John Cage in com- in conversation with Morton Feldman because their personalities were so different, you know, like the older brother kind of thing. You know, Morty was whining most of the time and Cage was soothing him most of the time. It's funny. So can you give us a brief sketch of Cage's life? Where did he come from? How did he get involved in music? And and how did he get to where he did the importance that he has in contemporary music? Yeah, I'll try to do that as quickly as possible. It's a pretty fascinating life. Um, He was born in Los Angeles. So he's a West Coast composer, and as you know, both of you are Americans. Is that true? Yes. You're an American as well. So you know the distinction between the East and the West Coast are quite different, and composers who come out of the West Coast are, generally speaking, uh, different. The The proximity is closer to Asia than it is to Europe. Um, so you have Indonesian influence, Japanese influence. Um, Cage was... Uh, born, he was the only child of a very eccentric inventor. His mother was a social writer for the Los Angeles Times. Um, as I say, he was an only child. He was a strange little critter even when he was young. He did things that were unorthodox. He just was, um, he was a very unusual fellow way back. John Cage was sort of born John Cage, if you know what I mean. He um, he, he landed on Music. He had actually varied interests, but when he was a young man and just finishing up high school, he had aspirations to be a minister because he always sort of tended toward the ministerial. Even you can hear that often in his. Uh, you can see it in his letters actually when he responds to people. Um, but he was interested in visual art. He started painting at an early age. He, it was really Arnold Schoenberg, supposedly, who said to him, you know, I'll teach you, but you have to devote yourself entirely to music, to which Kate said, I'll do it. And that was the end of that. So painting went out the window, study of uh, Gothic architecture, which he had done a little bit in Europe. But uh, he threw himself into music. And he studied with a few people in Los Angeles, Schoenberg sort of being the culmination of that. He was incredibly ambitious as a young man wanted to he used to say to people if you want something go to the head of the company he was very um he was very i don't know what the word is but sort of calculating about how to get ahead and 
but he was also uh, incredibly uh, inclusive in the way that he was in the world so that whenever he moved somewhere, went somewhere, he would find the most interesting people somehow and they would all become friends. It would be this one kind of love fest. He moved from Los Angeles. He got married to a young woman named Zenia Kashabirov, who was a, 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 an Alaskan princess, oddly, a Russian princess born of one of, I think it's six girls of an Alaskan minister, high priest, actually, Kashabirov. Um, anyway, he and Zenia moved to Seattle, where Cage got a job. Uh, as an accompanist, really, to dance classes, but he also taught informally in composition. And he started up his first percussion ensemble, which was his great love percussion because it uh, was inclusive of noise and it didn't rely on harmonic uh, shaping of music, which he said always said he had no feeling for. Uh, whereas percussion, of course, is very much about rhythm and less about harmony because I don't know what percentage of percussion instruments are unpitched, but a lot. So he became, he really described himself as a percussion composer for a long time. So he was in um, Seattle for a number of years. He befriended the sort of the Northwest artists, uh, uh, Morris Graves in particular. He then moved, he and Zenia moved to, uh, well, they didn't move first. They spent a little bit of time at Mills College. By the way, it was when he was in Seattle that he met Merce Cunningham, who was then a dance student. Um, so they were seven years apart. Merce was born in 1919, Cage in 1912. Merce left uh, Seattle first because he was invited by Martha Graham to dance with her company in New York, which he went in a heartbeat. And Cage uh, just wanted to go east. You know, any, any self-respecting anybody in the arts up until a certain period, I couldn't say when that changed exactly, but it's no longer really the case. But certainly it was the case in the 30s and 40s. He ended up, uh, he and Zenia went east. They stopped in Chicago for a year, a city he wasn't crazy about. He made one radio play there for the Columbia Workshop. And then he ended up in New York. And he had a, a following by this time, but it was really in New York in the early 50s, starting, I'd say, around 50 and going to the end of the 50s that he made his name. He became this, this uh, strange new force in contemporary music partly because of um, 433, of course, which happened in 1952, but also because of his uh, first uh, retrospective concert sponsored by Jasper Johns in New York, which was covered by Life magazine. So he got a lot of attention. Yeah, he did get a lot of attention at, at a period when it really was the avant-garde. But in the United States at that time, while the avant-garde was considered a bit out there, it was still filling the magazines, Life Magazine, Time, and, and, and all of those would still talk about these people. That's correct. That's correct. You know, and even if you look at like that, really, it's all over the place now that um, it's ubiquitous. The, the footage of Cage doing Water Walk on I've Got a Secret. You know, if you look at I've Got a Secret, the whole history of that program back then, you know, there were a lot of really interesting people on that show. You know, it wasn't just a freakish thing that Cage was on. I mean, John Cale was on it. Yeah, playing playing Satie's vexations, or or one one of the one repetition of vexations. I'll put YouTube links in the show notes for both of those. They're very interesting. the The Cage piece is particularly interesting because they're all sort of laughing at him, 
but he continued to be entirely serious about the performance of this piece, which one can certainly say can make a lot of people laugh. Yes, and he even says in that show, you know, that Gary Moore says to him, you know, this is a, a regular audience, you know, some people are going to laugh. Will that be okay with you? And he says, I prefer laughter to tears. You know, <laughs> he was, so he, you're quite right, Kirk, that he was serious, but he was also um, appreciative of how people are and how, you know, what their responses might be. So he never felt like a taskmaster or like he was judging people or he's very warm. So anyway, he spent the rest of his life in New York, you know, and, and he went through many different kinds of, of sort of composition styles, if you will, or, or emphases, maybe is a better way to put it. He developed ways of working theatrically differently throughout the 60s. He started making radio pieces. He, uh, as I said, made the operas. That was later. He developed a new notation system that started around 1984, which was his exclusive way of writing to the end of his life. He started writing really in the early 1960s through his really devotion to Marcel Duchamp, devotion to uh, Henry David Thoreau. James Joyce, as you mentioned, was extremely important to him. So he developed a kind of way of, of an original poetic system called misostics. So, and he started painting. He started painting around uh, 1981 and so he made a body of visual artworks by the end of his life. Original watercolors, edible drawings made of plant matter and fruits and vegetables dried. He was an amazing guy. You know, it's his biographer. I don't know if you've read his biography. It's called Begin Again by Ken Silverman. Ken just died. May he rest in peace. Literally just like a month ago died. Um, but in that book, so he did that book. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author of uh, biographies of eccentric American, important eccentric people. Houdini, for example, uh, Ed Edgar Allan Poe, Samuel F. Morse. So I asked him when he was working on Cage whether or not um, what, what his next book would be, who was going to be his next victim, if you will. And he said, oh, no, 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 this is it. And I said, why is that? And he said, oh, this has just been the hardest book I've ever done. I said, what has made it so hard? And he said, well, two things. He said, one is that nothing adventurous happened to Cage. I mean, he wasn't in the war. He didn't have a family. True. He didn't, he never broke an arm. He, you know what I mean? There was nothing. He just moved from place to place and kept composing wherever he was sitting. So he said it was hard to structure a biography and make it dramatic, you know. But he said much harder was that is that every time he turned around and lifted a rock, there was John Cage. And it's really true, you know, that the, the interest in chess, the interest in mycology, the visual artworks, the connection with uh, the likes of uh, Lou Reed, you know, he crossed barriers and everything that he did. His Buddhism was a very big deal. His poetry, his, you know, his interaction with poets, he just was everywhere. And that's still the case. I think in, in some respects, it's probably why the John Cage Trust is still here, because it's not a very narrow uh, what could be a very narrow avant-garde late composer. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, w he, he had tendrils that stretched out into all the different arts and things that weren't the arts. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he had, that was his interest as well. I mean, he was constantly, he was a great cook, by the way. He was a great macrobiotic cook. And some would argue he was a far better non-macrobiotic cook before that. 
but and they missed his coco van and they missed his you know his uh, creme brulees and but I only knew him in his macrobiotic years. But the point of this is that he had endless numbers of, uh, of dinner parties. He was a fantastic host. And he would cook dinner and invite the, the most interesting strangers to have dinner with him and Merce. Let's talk about his music. You mentioned 433, which is a piece that lasts 4 minutes and 33 seconds. This is probably, if people have heard of John Cage and don't know his music, this is the piece that they've heard of. And it's more of a concept than an actual piece. What's the backstory of this? Well, there's really no backstory. There is, by the way, um, I mean, it's a lot. I should say there's a long backstory to this piece. It really has to do with the interest in ambient sound, uh, the interest of breaking down kind of structural barriers, the idea of doing things which were explosive, doing things which blew the lid off of convention. But it was really, that piece was really inspired most most strongly by Robert Rauschenberg's all black and all white paintings. Cage used to say that the visual artists were always one step ahead of the musicians. It took the musicians a while to get to the same place. And that was the same kind of correlate to all black, all white, nothing to see, nothing to hear, so to speak. Except that we know from Duchamp forward that there's always something to see. And, and from Cage, of course, always something to hear. So the backstory is really, I suppose, that. There is a book dedicated to this work, which is a really fantastic book, called No Such Thing as Silence. By Kyle Gann. By Kyle Gann, exactly. And it's a wonderful book. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm probably the world's worst critic or best critic, depending on how you look at it. But I love that book. But you're right. 433 is the length of the first performance, and by chance, uh, operations, which Kate employed, Cage employed, uh, starting right around that same time, maybe one or two years earlier, the, that 4.33 is uh, divided into three times, adding up to 4.33, so you have movements. So the piece is, is in three movements. The, the uh, pianist in that case, by the way, the piece can be performed by any kind of instrument, can be performed by an orchestra, singers, anything. We've had MIDI performances of it. We have, you know, all different kinds of players play 433. But in that, in the first performance, it was David Tudor, the great, great, great pianist David Tudor, who played it um, at, in Woodstock at the Maverick Concert Hall. And what he did was punctuate the change of movements by opening and then closing the lid. So he would open the lid to indicate that a movement had ended, and then he would close it when the new movement began, which is, of course, the opposite of what you would do if you were going to play the piano. You would open the lid. And, and he had his watch on, on the piano so he could keep track of the time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it was, you know, four minutes and 33 seconds of really the sound of the concert hall, which, by the way, the Maverick Concert Hall, which is very close to here, where the Cage Trust is in the Hudson Valley in New York, is an open-air theater. So it's, there's a lot of outdoors uh, around there. And I think it was, it had, or maybe still has, I can't remember, but it had like a tin roof and it rained for part of it. So you would get the percussion of the rain on the tin roof. You'd maybe hear the birds outside and the breeze. That's right. I, I remember that when I, when I met Cage in 1986, I went to his apartment on 18th Street and he, he had this table in front of these windows where he worked. And I remember sitting down and you can't, be talking to John Cage without realizing that all the traffic sound coming outside is part of the whole atmosphere. It was actually quite strange to think of that. Yeah, he loved it. He used to say that that was one of his favorite 
musical sounds was the sound of traffic outside because what he liked best about it was that it was non-repetitive, that you had no control over what it would be, how it would sound. He didn't like car horns that go off, you know. And like the alarms that beep all the time, yeah. Yes, hated it, hated it. Loved yeah. the steam the uh, steam radiators in the apartment. That would hiss, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he loved that kind um, of thing. Cage, in one of his letters, said, I am most interested in music that doesn't say anything. That's fascinating because he wanted to divorce himself from the role of composer, didn't he? Well, the role of composer as it had been defined by Western European music, certainly, and certainly the Romantic era. Yeah, you know, th th there are many ways to take it. In, in an interesting way based on him. Like one of the things, one story that he tells very early on is that in response to the question of why did you develop chance procedures to make music, why, you know, and he talked about when he was a young man and just beginning to compose and how he composed a piece that was supposed to be very sad and people laughed or vice versa. You know, he wrote something that for him was very sad and people are very happy and people felt sad, like it was sad music. And he realized that that music was not the best means of conveying emotional content because it was better suited to words. <laughs> so there was that for him. Now, one could argue that, you know, and it has been argued, you know, that, it, well, he must not have been a very good composer then, you know, because a composer should be able to write a sad piece and convey sadness or, you know. But he just didn't like the idea. He thought that music had its own powers of uh, persuasion, its own emotive characteristics, and all we have to do is comment about lights. Lights are, uh, lights are, ex lights are expressive to anyone who says they are. Do you know what I mean? So this yeah. whole notion of that you create meaning, that you know, inherent, there is no inherent reality to any of it. He was really a Buddhist, you know, in his heart. He didn't practice Buddhism. Um, really, he didn't sit zazen. He didn't meditate. He didn't do any of those things. But he adapted meditative, meditative Buddhist practice to the composition of music. And and he had that worldview as well that informed his life most of his life. the The first piece of his music that I really discovered this is when I was a in my late teens, and I don't know why I bought this album. It was a recording by the LaSalle Quartet of his string quartet coupled with a quartet by Ludoslavsky. And that string quartet is fascinating because it's it's almost the last piece before he developed chance operations, isn't it? You know, there's, there's a letter in the letters book about that where he's writing to his mother and from Europe, and he says, I'm on to something. This is really important to me. And it's been posited that silence in that piece is an instrument, so to speak. I've never actually taken the piece apart or had the time to take the piece apart and look at it, but I suspect that that's true. Well, well, there are these there are these pauses in the piece. There are phrases and then pauses, as if it's a conversation or as if it's breathing and then pausing in between breaths. What's interesting in that piece is there's very there's almost no counterpoint, and and the instruments are almost always playing in unison. So in a way, it's an anti-string quartet because we tend to think of the string quartet as as what Haydn wrote. And what Cage did is totally different from that. I agree. I agree. It's actually one of my favorite pieces of his. The quadlibet at the end is just fantastically beautiful if it's played right, you know, like the Arditi or somebody like that, where they actually do it sprightly. It's, you know, nobody writes, writes like that. Nobody. One of his, I guess we can call it inventions, is the prepared piano. Probably the best known work of Cage's early period is the sonatas and interludes for prepared piano. This is what, around 49, 19, 
45? 46 to 48 was the compositional period, but it was so, it was, uh, you can think of it, completion was 48. Okay. So he did this because he wanted to make the piano, which technically is a percussion instrument, into more of a percussion instrument. Is that right? Well, the story actually was far more pragmatic than that. The story goes that when he was in Seattle, where this uh, originally happened with his first piece for prepared piano was called Bacchanal. And the Bacchanal piece was uh, commissioned, if you will. It was just a request. There was no money or anything. It was a request by um, a choreographer at Seattle, a, a black American composer, interestingly, because there were very few at the time, named Sevilla Fort. And Sevilla Fort asked Cage if he could write her a piece for a dance recital that she was giving that week that had a an African flair to it. And he said, yes, of course. And he was writing 12-tone music at the time, which was very Schoenberg-influenced, very German. And he went home and tried to write a 12-tone piece that had an African flair, which, of course, was impossible. You know, So he, he realized that, as this is very cage, he realized that the problem was not him because he was working as conscientiously as he could, but rather with the instrument. And so the story goes, he went into the kitchen and came back with kitchen things, including a, a, a metal pie tin, and he put it on the strings, and then he played some music, and he knew he was going in the right direction. The problem, however, was that the pie, pin, the pie pan bounced, and so couldn't, you couldn't repeat anything, but he knew he was going in the right direction. So then he started getting things and securing them in, in between the strings, sometimes two, sometimes three strings, depending on what note you're playing. And he started preparing the piano. You know, this is with wood screws and those old Eberhard pink erasers that nobody really needs anymore except drafting students, maybe, <laughs> you know. So he just was, you know, using these materials, you know, weather stripping from windows, whatever he could get his hands on that would stay put. And he realized that he was going in the right direction. So there's a very, it's not a huge body of works, but he wrote, um, you know, a body of works culminating in the um, sonatas and interludes for prepared piano, which was his magnus opus for the instrument. And that was the last time he, he worked with prepared piano. Yeah, it, it's interesting that he, he got to the culmination of the technique and then abandoned it and moved on to something else. Yeah, yeah. I think he was desirous. I mean, think about it. He was, that was 1948. He was changing. He was also... 48 was a very dark time in America. You know, we're talking about just after the Second World War. We're now in, entering the Cold War. We're entering McCarthyism. All the women, you know, have been kind of holding things together. And now all the men have come home and want them to go back to the kitchen. So the battle of the sexes kind of begins around that time, the struggle between the sexes. It was a dark time in America. And then after that, he went to Paris for a while. And so that was a big change. He met the French musicians and particularly his love for Satie. He was exploring all the Satie manuscripts he could find. And Yep, yep. And he met Pierre Boulez. So yep. he began to have these very important... He met Feldman in 1950, mm -hmm. you know, so he became um, a senior figure in that. And it, it led him in a many different directions. Like he really wanted to start writing for larger ensembles, you know, so he wrote his first music for ballet, for the New York uh, Ballet Society, later the New York City Ballet, um, with, and he, and he and Merce Cunningham, so he and Merce Cunningham finally get together right around 47, 48, and so he's writing now for dancers, he's, you know, so things shifted for him, 
But I'm always amazed, you know, when I, uh, this happens with some frequency, I'll meet someone and they find out what I do. And they, not always, but there are a number of people who will say, oh, John Cage, God, I hate his music. And I'm always genuinely shocked because they say, all of it? There's so much of it. What is to hate? Yeah. They're so fresh and beautiful and strange. And they could be, they could have been written now, you know. Well, in, in a way, they, they sound to me something like Brian Eno would have written in the 1980s. They just feel current. Like they could have been written by somebody now, and I'd be perfectly willing to accept that. Well, it, it's fair to say that some of his music is hard to listen to. In fact, this weekend, I was listening to the Freeman Etudes, which are for solo violin, and this is not enjoyable music. This is not relaxing music. It, it, it may be true for you. Hey, lots of people like rap music and I don't, you know, different strokes. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. So, when, so it isn't the argument that how can you hate John Cage's music? It's so interesting, but rather, really, you hate all of it? Well, because people don't know that much of it. What, what I find really interesting is the pieces that he did in, what, the last 10 or 12 years of his life that he calls the number pieces— can you walk us through what this means, what, what his concepts were behind these pieces? Sure, sure. I actually think this is probably one of the most um, innovative, uh, phenomenally important shifts in Western art music that we saw. And it took him his whole life to get there. But the number pieces are basically uh, compositions which use what are called time brackets. And time brackets that... Um, uh, are at the start of a section of the piece and at the end of a section of the piece. And that could be three measures. It could be 40 measures. It could be whatever. Usually it's, it's the, the length, uh, the width of a piece of paper, a music paper, but it tells the player to begin to play sometime in this range, what follows, and then end it sometime in this range. That's given these brackets of time. They can be either fixed or they're flexible that there are nuances. He did 43 such pieces between 1986 and 1992 when he died. It's the only way he wrote music. But what this did was he developed a way of composing music with scores that are fully notated and yet cannot be played the same way twice. They cannot be. Because there's so much latitude for the individual musicians. As they perform. That's exactly right. It's I won't say so much latitude, but as I say, 43 pieces, and they're very different. So some of them, there are number pieces for orchestra. There are number pieces for solo players. There are number pieces for string quartets. There are number places pieces for singers. There are some, there are number pieces for percussion ensembles. There are number pieces that are for unspecified instrumentation. There are number pieces for... Um, for n no musical instruments, just numbers. So you create, if you're going to play, there's a piece called 4-6. The superscript 6 indicates it's the fourth piece. It's the sixth piece that he wrote for an ensemble of four players. Right. The first number is the number of performers, and the superscript is the, the, the number in the series of pieces for the, that number of performers. That's exactly right. And there's only one little tiny caveat to that, and that is that there are pieces called, uh, let's see, like 4-2. Four, four, in that case, means four parts. So it's actually a piece for choir. Um, anyway, but so there's this one piece called 4-6 in which you as the player have to develop 12 different sound events, whatever those might be. So it could be um, a line of poetry, 
It could be, you know, uh, a dance. It could be a, uh, some physical action. You have four players that do that, and then the score, your score, has those time brackets on either side of a portion of it. But you're playing within that those sound events. So instead of musical notes written on a score, it will say two, six, nine. You know, so it'll say your second sound event, your sixth, your ninth, right. whatever. So they're they're all really different. One of the most beautiful forties, I mean, just to give your listeners a kind of broader idea about these pieces, what's one of my favorite ones, I think it's called 74, is an orchestral work for strings, wherein all the players have identical music. But because they're playing with time within time brackets, this has the effect of sounding like an unbelievably beautiful harp because all of the parts are a kilter. Do you know what I mean? They're off slightly. So right. it's just full of these string echoes. It's just phenomenally beautiful. So <laughs> so that's a number of pieces. And really, it's the first time in history since the development, really, of Western music notation where, they're, where the literally it cannot there cannot be a master performance there cannot be a proper performance you know so you can't have a von Karajan or a Stokowski doing it the best because there is no best isn't that interesting yeah it is it it makes music into a a, a time dependent event that the, the event only exists once and whether it's recorded or not and what you hear is what's there, and it's never going to happen again. So it makes it ma it makes it unique. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Can we finish by recommending a few pieces of Cage's music that people can listen to to see if they hate it all, or hate some of it, or like some of it, or like it all? We've mentioned the sonatas and interludes for prepared piano and the string quartet, and I'll link to these in the show notes. Can you recommend a couple of other pieces? Yeah, well, let's let's just be real clear about the string quartet. It's the string quartet in four parts. That's the name of it. Right. Sorry. You know, really, one of his most popular pieces um, to this day is his. Uh, God, I'm going to get this wrong. Third construction. Sorry, third construction. That's one of his uh, most amazing percussion pieces uh, early from the 1930s, which he once referred to as his bolero. It sort of eclipsed everything. Everybody wanted to play the third construction. It's so energetic and, and spirited and young. It's just a beautiful piece. And then I'd go with 74 as an example of the um, orchestral number pieces. I'm going to throw in two selections. One of them that I was just listening to over the weekend, the Piano Works 3 on Mode Records, performed by Stephen Drury's Cheap Imitation, which is a piece, what is it, about 40 minutes long, and it's very interesting because it's a very slow, deliberate rhythm, and apparently he took this from Satie's rhythms, and the notes are all individual, some, sim somewhat similar to the string quartet in four parts, yet it has a beautiful sort of relaxing tone to it. So Cheap Imitation is an amazing piece. I mean, an absolutely amazing piece. And by the way, all of Cage's pieces are amazing pieces because they have these incredibly fascinating uh, unique ideas behind them. But that's a reworking um, of Eric Satie's Socrat. It's a, a, a kind of a process of, of taking out some notes, leaving some notes, elongating some notes through chance. Cheap imitation is a beautiful work. You're not wrong. Gorgeous. 
One other piece that I really like is called Rio NG, and in particular, the recording on, is it Hat Hot Records? It's about 70 minutes long. I, I don't know how to describe this. It's a sort of a sound poem. The goal was that he was trying to create the sound of the Ryoenji Temple in Japan. Is that it? Well, sort of. It's not really trying to recreate anything because Cage would never do that. But why it's called Ryoenji is that you're right. Ryoenji was the name of the Zen garden in Kyoto, which he loved. And he um, created a little collection for himself of the stones, replicating the stones that are in that garden, which is a raked garden and the stones are placed you know, as they're placed. Anyway, he made visual artworks using these stones and pencils with chance operations called Ryoanji drawings. He also made a series of print works using this idea and watercolors, but he turned to music fairly quickly. And those works are what we call graphic notation in music. So they aren't, they don't use traditional music notation. What he did was through chance operations, place the stones, the Ryoanji stones, onto grids of music paper and then trace from left to right. So the players are actually reading the these graphic half circles in the in the from left to right as music is written. And most of the pieces have a percussion obligato. So they have a piece that may or may not be played, depending on how you read obligato these days. But in general, you'll hear these pieces with this kind of strange, kind of percussive. Um, uh, I don't know how to how to how to describe it, other than to say that it punctuates these sort of long, sustained sounds that are going on. There are five works for called Rioanji, each for a solo instrument. There's one for voice. There's one for bassoon. I can't remember what else, but anyway, there are four, there are five of them. They're unique. Again, you hate all of his music. <laughs> you know, let me, <laughs> let me give you a couple, you know, just try this one. Oh, don't like that. Try this one. You know, the Rio Anji pieces are quite beautiful and you're right. Very, very meditative. This has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Laura Kuhn, executive director of the John Cage Trust and John Cage's, I guess you're John Cage's air, as you said earlier, in a way. <laughs> I said I was the closest thing to an air. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, Laura. Oh, it's my pleasure, you guys. Thanks. Have a great day. This is the part of the show where we present our next tracks. These are record albums that we've either been listening to or plan on listening to or have been thinking about listening to. They're not necessarily recommendations, just albums that we recently have been thoughtful about. Kirk, What's your next track? We're recording on Monday, and for the past few days, I've been like a kid in the candy shop. ECM Records started allowing their music to be streamed, and I've been on Apple Music, and I've been playing ECM albums and ECM playlists for the past three days. My next track this week is the ECM playlist, which is almost 10 hours of music by ECM. It's all jazz, and ECM has jazz music, and they have world music that they call transcultural, and they have their new series, which is contemporary classical music, including some John Cage. Um, but I've been listening to the jazz for now. I, I've always liked the ECM jazz sound. It's not mellow, but it's relatively contained. It's not crazy jazz. They've got artists like Jan Gabarik, Keith Jarrett, Bill Frizzle, Chick Corea, and this playlist is a wonderful selection of the best of ECM. As I said, it's almost 10 hours long. It's 74 tracks. 
I don't think I've listened to the whole thing yet. I've put it on shuffle because I didn't want to listen in order. And it's just been a pleasure. Um, so if you like this sort of jazz or if you're interested in the kind of classical music that ACM recorded, by all means, check them out on Apple Music and all the other streaming services. What about you, Doug? Most people think of the Rolling Stones as a five-piece outfit, two guitars, bass, drums, and a Mick Jagger. But for a long time, until his death, there was an unofficial sixth Rolling Stone, piano player Ian Stewart. Now, Ian Stewart is actually one of the founders of the band, but he didn't have the cute looks of the other guys, and as a result, he was sort of always in the background. They didn't even put him in the marketing. And as a result, he isn't very well known, but he played on most of their recordings into the 80s, and he toured with them, too, as a road manager and an occasional keyboard player. He died in 1985. You can look him up on Wikipedia. Uh, all of this is to serve as an introduction to my next track, which is an album from 2011 by piano player Ben Waters called Boogie for Stew, a tribute to Ian Stewart. Now, Ian Stewart loved boogie-woogie rock and roll piano playing and not much else. And this album recreates a, a lot of his favorite piano songs with Ben Waters on piano and special guests Mick, Keith, Ronnie, Bill, Charlie as well as Jules Holland, a, a boogie-woogie guy in his own right. P.J. Harvey's on the album. Now, one of my favorite stories about Ian Stewart is that he hated Bob Dylan's music, except for one song, Watching the River Flow, which featured his buddy Leon Russell on piano. Now, there's a great rendition of this song on the album with Jagger on vocals and the rest of the Stones. It's almost worth the entire album just to have that song. But in general, it's good piano playing all the way through. Ben Waters, Boogie for Stew, a tribute to Ian Stewart, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.